1 Corinthians chapter 10. And when you're there, let's go ahead and stand for the reading of God's Word. Therefore, my beloved, flee from the worship of idols. I speak as to sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread." Consider Israel according to the flesh. Are not those who eat at the sacrifices partners in the altar? What do I imply then? That food sacrificed to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be partners with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or are we provoking the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we lift this time up to you now as we continue our time of worship in the hearing of your word. I want to echo Pastor Keith's prayer. Lord, I know that my words uh, are weak. They are frail They are full of sin when it is left to my own devices. And so, Lord, I pray that you would simply use me as an instrument this morning to proclaim the truth of your word, that all of us in this room would be changed and molded into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. And it's through his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Be seated. So I'm going to ask a question here, and this is a question that you want to answer internally. Sometimes, sometimes we ask questions and we get, and don't get me wrong, we get the Bereans, right? And they're there with the answers and that's great, okay? But this one, just, just think about it. Ellie, did you throw that? Go pick that up. Right now, come on. Okay, I have a question. (laughs) One of the things that we want to do as we talk about Christian liberty, as we've been doing for the past few weeks, is I hope that every week there's more clarity about what that is, what that looks like. Paul spends a lot of time on it. So the question that I want you to answer internally is what is the point of your Christian liberty? Why did God all of a sudden just grant liberty to his people? Or did he just all of a sudden grant liberty to his people? Or perhaps maybe a lot of Christians have taken this concept of Christian liberty and just simply misappropriated what it's there for, what the purpose of it is. Let me put this another way. 
What would an Israelite family under the Mosaic law eat for dinner on a Tuesday night? Anything they wanted, as long as it didn't violate the Mosaic covenant and law. What can a Christian family under the law of Christ eat for dinner on a Tuesday night? Answers, anything they want, as long as it doesn't violate the law of Christ. Or what could Adam and Eve eat in the garden for dinner on a Tuesday night, if they had even made it that far? Any tree they wanted, as long as it wasn't the tree of knowledge and good and evil. Well, what's my point? My point is that the concept of liberty has always existed in God's world, Because Christian liberty is not simply about new freedoms. It's not simply new freedoms so that you can just do what you want. The point of Christian liberty, as Paul has already told us and continues to tell us in our passage this morning, the point of Christian liberty is for the purpose of the Great Commission. There's a purpose for Christian liberty misunderstanding that purpose of Christian liberty, which the Corinthians had done, leads to idolatry. God has always been about liberty and enjoying his creation. In fact, when you look at the way that God deals with his people in Scripture, it always begins with generosity, and then he gives restrictions for a purpose. It's not just restrictions for the sake of restrictions. It's restrictions for the good of his people, that they may enjoy him and worship him and serve him. And then after the fall, those restrictions were given for the purpose so that his people would be a minister, would be ministers to the nations by being separated from them, by looking holy and different. So because restriction is not simply given for the sake of restriction, so too liberty and generosity from God is not simply for the sake of liberty and generosity. It's for the sake of His glory and for His purposes. Christian liberty is for the purpose of the Great Commission. And Paul is going to argue this morning about the dangers of misunderstanding Christian liberty by comparing the altar of Christ with the altar of demons. And that takes us into our first few verses this morning. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from the worship of idols. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So the first thing that Paul's saying here is that we are sharers of Christ. And he begins this by finishing up as he did, as we went through last week, talking about the failure, the fact that the failures of Israel were an example for the people of God today. And so he then says, therefore, flee from the worship of idols. Why would Paul need to say such a thing? 
Paul has already admitted in chapter 8 that there's nothing necessarily wrong with eating the meat that was sacrificed to idols. So the substance of the meat is not altered just because it was used in a pagan sacrifice. However, Paul is wise enough to see the dangers of towing the line on what we consider our liberties can lead us into idolatry. And what I mean by that is, if you look at liberty in the sense of, well, now in Christ I'm free, I can just kind of do what I want as long as I don't sin, then what you'll end up doing is kind of playing this game in your life where you tow right up to the line of what sin is. Hey, I'm okay, I can do this. Well, I'm okay, I can do this, actually. I'm free in Christ. I can move a little bit further as long as it doesn't enter into sin. And really what's happening that Paul's warning about is then what you'll do is you'll enter into idolatry. On the one hand, you've entered into idolatry because you've idolized the liberty instead of the purpose of why God gave it to his people, his new covenant people. But beyond that, you'll enter into idolatry because I think most of us know that when we tow the line on things we shouldn't be doing, what do we do? We never just stay there. We always cross that line. If the purpose is just going up to a line, a boundary, and saying, I go here and no further, I think when we take uh, valuable and real and honest inventory of our lives, we say, I've pretty much always crossed that line at some point. And so Paul sees this as well. See, there's a difference between going to somebody's house and then putting meat in front of you even though you know that that meat has been sacrificed to idols, there's a difference between that and actually partaking in the pagan rituals because, well, I don't think anything's actually going on there. We know those guards aren't real. So then Paul says, look, you judge my argument. You're sensible people. You judge what I have to say. And in order to evaluate this, this danger of idolatry, Paul is actually going to appeal to the Lord's Supper. And this is what he says. He says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? Paul asks these questions about sharing with the body and blood of Christ during communion. What he's trying to do is awaken them like, don't, don't you see when you come to the altar of Christ, you recognize, are you not sharing with Christ here at this altar? And so he's countering this idea, well, nothing's taking place at these pagan sacrifices because those gods aren't real. And the word that Paul uses here for sharing Right? This cup of blessing that we bless, is it not sharing in the blood of Christ? Or this bread that we break, is it not sharing in the body of Christ? Um, I'm going to get a little heady on you for about two minutes. Stay with me, all right? Two minutes. The word that's used here is koinonia, and we actually just talked about it just a few minutes ago when we talked about our church, and the word we use is fellowship. It's the same word. In this context, the idea, um, which is commonly used throughout Scripture, when it's used horizontally among people, it's talking about um, this kind of relationship that you have with someone else, a sharing of things with them, a sharing of a commonality with them. When it's used horizontally in the New Testament, 
when it's talking about koinonia with the Lord, it's talking about participating with him. This is how Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He uses koinonia, this idea of participating in Christ because of our union that we share with him. Now, the reason this is important is because usually when we think of participating, we think of participating horizontally. This, idea, this is why, by the way, fellowship at this level is so important that Paul says that you shouldn't be fellowshipping with somebody horizontally if they are un, in unrepentant sin and the church has had to put church discipline on them. If they've been excommunicated from the church, you don't fellowship with them because your fellowshipping them is actually participating in the wickedness that they're in. But in the same way, in the context here, it's participating with Christ through the bread and the wine. And so what Paul is actually saying here is when you come to this altar, it's this idea of personal contact. There's this participating with Christ in the blood and in the body. And the reason we know that this connection, this kind of participation is taking place is because these are this in the blood and in the body. These are what are called genitive modifiers. It's modifying this kind of fellowship. It's, it's keying you in on what, am, what is Paul talking about here when he uses koinonia regarding the bread and the wine. They are revealing what it is that we are participating in through the Lord's Supper. Verse 17 also tells us that because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake in the one bread. Participating with Christ also joins us together. Though we are many, and though unfortunately, uh, and I would say especially today uh, in the church, we have made a lot of things about our life with Christ, very individualistic. But the one thing that cannot be individualistic, that's impossible to be individualistic, if it is done correctly, is communion. Because you come together and partake of one bread. You drink of one cup. See, the Lord's table, and why this is Paul is comparing this to the pagan altars as he's, he's showing the radical difference between the two and the importance of why you can only participate in one and not the other. See, the Lord's table that we have together as Christians that we do on Sunday morning is a banquet table. It's a table where we come together as Christians and we dine together with Christ. Think of how close you get over a meal with somebody. You, maybe you're getting to know somebody in your life, and what do you do? That, that kind of next step is you have them over to your house, you have a meal, you talk over the meal, and then if it's a good time, they leave, and you know, I'll turn to Michelle and go, hey, that was a really good time. I feel like I really got to know them on, on such a deeper level than seeing them at work or seeing them just you know, on Wednesday nights. Well, that's actually what's supposed to be happening at this communion table. That's how we're supposed to see it anyway that we are dining together at the Lord's table. We're going to circle back to that later. 
But moving on into verse 18, Paul then says, Consider Israel according to the flesh. Are not those who eat the sacrifices partners in the altar? What do I imply then? That food sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what the pagans sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be partners with demons. For Paul, the issue was not the food. The issue was not the fact that these idols were made out of stone or wood or clay. Those things are what are nothing. Those things are just, it's it's substance. The meat doesn't change its substance when it's sacrificed. It's still meat. The issue for Paul is that the pagan gods were demons. See, they're not gods, but they are demons. And Paul is actually picking up on some Old Testament passages like Psalm 96.5. For all the gods of the nations are demons. In Psalm 106.37, they sacrifice their sons and their daughters to demons. And Deuteronomy 32.15-17, And Israel grew fat and he kicked. You grew fat, you bloated, and you became obstinate. Then he abandoned God his maker and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They made him jealous with strange gods. With detestable idols, they provoked him. They sacrificed to the demons, not God, to gods whom they had not known, new gods who came from recent times, gods your fathers had not known. This is the song of Moses. And in this particular point, he's talking about the failure of Israel when Moses was on the mount communing with God, that Israel decided to make their own gods. And that's why Aaron says in Exodus 32, Here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And so Paul is picking up on these themes that Israel struggled with, just like he did last week when Israel is an example, right? An example of failure saying, don't fall into this. And so Paul is using Israel again as a warning not to fall into the same lies. And that's why he says in verse 18, if I go back to it, consider Israel according to the flesh. Are not those who eat the sacrifices partners in the altar? Now look at verse 18. It's not sharers in the altar, it's partners in the altar. And it's actually the same word, not the same word that's used earlier about uh, the Lord's Supper, but it is the same word that's used further down of partners with demons. Paul is comparing the two. The failure of Israel when they went after other gods and sacrificed to these other gods, their failure was that they went after demons. And so an identity, a partnership, is established between those who offer sacrifices and the altar upon which those sacrifices are altered or offered because of what's behind them. See, Paul's point seems to be that to eat the food that had been altered in the sacrifice was to participate in the cultic act itself. 
Not simply the eating, but when you go and feast and participate at that altar, that's not what your Christian freedom is for. Instead, what you've done is you've participated in the cultic, demonic practice. And why is that important? It's important regarding liberty because your liberty in Christ is to bring the gospel to the nations, not to join the nations. You bring the gospel to their sinful, demonic, pagan, wicked, rebellious practices, but you don't join in on them. And if you are simply using your liberty in order to justify your behavior, then you've missed the entire point that Paul is making. Your liberty is not about being able to smoke cigars and drink bourbon and get tattoos and scoff at God's law and have more fun than Israel was allowed to have. Your liberty is for the purpose of fulfilling the Great Commission. And the reason why, by the way, is because it couldn't be done without liberty. See, Israel, it worked for Israel with the law because Israel was a nation. They were a stagnant. They were there. And they're supposed to be a people here. And they're, um, they're a light to the Gentile nations. That was their mission. But with Christ, the mission has changed because the temple is no longer in Jerusalem. Now the temple is within us. And so Jesus says, instead of people coming to the temple, the temple goes out to them. We are the temple of God. The church goes out. That's the mission of the church. And it couldn't be done without the liberty to go to these Gentile and pagan nations and cultures and actually, what? Interact with them. If there wasn't liberty... Paul wouldn't even be able to interact with them in the way he is. He needed that liberty. This is why uh, Jesus meets Peter uh, on the rooftop and says, I have, I have, don't call these things unclean. I've made them clean. Why? It's not so that, G- that Peter can now enjoy shrimp. He'd been really missing out, and now he gets shrimp. Thank you, Lord Jesus. No, it's so that you now can go to these nations not having to constantly fear about being under the law because you're not. So the issue is not the meat, but it is an issue to be involved with the sacrifice. And what happens, Paul says, is it provokes God to jealousy. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or are we provoking the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than him? No. I think that was an easy answer. I think they got that one pretty quickly. No. See, but some Corinthians thought that their liberty went as far as this kind of participation in these pagan sacrifices. But what Paul's warning them, he's like, look, you need to understand when you participate in the pagan rituals, you're partnering with them. And you cannot partner with them and share in the cup of the Lord. You cannot play both sides. To partner with them at the altar is to partner with them in their demonic work and in their demonic influence. And so this is easy enough to see because when our liberty is all about us, 
we will and we do tend to fall into idolatry because it's no longer about working with the Lord and sharing in the altar of the Lord and and, and bringing the gospel to the nations. It becomes about me. It's all about me. What do I get to enjoy now that I'm free in Christ? So Paul's saying, look, you better be careful because if that's the mentality you have, and you think you're free to then go join in in these worldly and pagan sacrifices, you better be careful because you're provoking the Lord to jealousy because what you're doing is you're standing against Him. You've partnered with the demonic realm against the Lord who defeats the demonic realm. And that's why he says, do you think you're stronger than He is? So do not be partners with demon. In fact, in fact, Paul uses the same language here with partnering with demons that he uses in 1 Corinthians 6 regarding joining oneself to a prostitute. Christ will not be partners with darkness. He will not join with darkness. And so the Corinthians could not partake in sacrificial or festival meals like that any more than they could fornicate with a prostitute. And the warning is that by doing so, they will provoke the Lord to jealousy, just as Israel had done, that Paul used as an example earlier in the chapter. Now, this is important because to drink and eat with someone is a sign of communion with them, right? We talked about that. It forms this kind of relationship with them. And so Paul's warning, he's saying, look, if you, if you partake in these meals, right, not, not, not eating the meat, right, but if you partake in the sacrificial meals, if you partake in the sacrifices and join in with that altar, you are partnering with the work of demons. It's not simply figurative. It's not a metaphor. It's real. And I think that maybe, maybe that's hard for us today because we're in the age of the skeptics. Right? Anything we can't see, it's like, I, I heard, like, you talk to Christians today and they'll say, yeah, is there a spiritual realm? Of course. But they don't live like it actually exists. But Paul's saying it does. It's very real. Real enough that if you participate in it, you're standing against the Lord. You're provoking him to jealousy. And the danger, too, is that when you do this, not only are you participating in it, but you're making others feel more comfortable in their idol worship as well. Instead of bringing them the gospel. When Paul talks about, by the way, this idea of provoking the Lord to jealousy, he's also uh, quoting from the Old Testament. He's quoting from... uh, Deuteronomy 32 as well, the song of Moses. He says, They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. See, all things belong to the Lord. And so to use your liberty to transgress God's purpose and God's commandments is actually the language being used here is to arm yourself against the Lord in battle. 
And think about that for a second. That's, that's the kind of language that, the, that Scripture uses. When you rebel against God, when you join in with these pagan sacrifices and are worshiping in this way and partnering with demons, what you are actually doing is it's not neutral. You are arming yourself in battle against the Lord. And that's why Paul says, we are not stronger than him, are we? Would we win that battle? Well, let me read for you from Psalm 2. This is what happens when people conspire against the Lord. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against His anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. Yahweh scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of Yahweh. And he said to me, You are my son, Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship Yahweh with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Pay homage to the sun that he not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. That's what becomes of those who take their stand against the Lord. I keep getting confused about where the time is because our clock's a little off up there, but let me just take a couple minutes here. Let me give you some application, okay? Because according to that, I got like 35 more minutes, but I don't think. <laughs> what does this look like today? There are two main things from this passage that I want us to take away. And the first, I've said over and over again, but I'm going to continue to beat this dead horse. But our liberty is for the purpose of the Great Commission. And losing that perspective will lead us into idolatry. So we want to look at our freedom in Christ through the lens of his lordship. What has he called us to do? Think, think about it. We, we've talked about this as a church, right? That everybody has been given a ministry from the Lord. You have called to, been called to be a minister of the gospel in whatever context the Lord has put you. Right? Just a few weeks ago, we even spoke about Paul's command to remain where you are. Why? So that you can be a minister of the gospel to where the Lord has you. Therefore, your freedom in Christ is for what he has called you to do. Your freedom is the freedom that he has given you to accomplish the ministry that he's called you to. 
And so the warning is that we dare not use this freedom in order to partner with demons. In other words, we dare not use it to fellowship with the world and worldly systems. Or I should say, we dare not use it to partner with the world and worldly systems. And unfortunately, we are seeing that happen in the church today, where people think they can take pieces of the philosophies of the world and say, you know what, I'm going to take some of this, and I'm going to take a little bit of that, and I'm going to take some of this, and then what I'm going to do is I'm going to take it into the church because it'll meet the felt needs of the people. And Paul's saying, you can't do that. That's idolatry. That's the ways of the world. You cannot partner with the ways of the world that way. It's demonic. It's not, by the way, and I've said this before too, but there's no such thing as neutral ground. It is a battle going on between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of earth. You cannot side saddle. You cannot sit between the two kingdoms and think, well, I'll just take some of that neutral and take it with me. No, it it either all belongs to Jesus or it's actively opposing Jesus. So obviously this then means, as Paul's saying, is we don't participate in pagan rituals or sacrifices. And one of the examples I was thinking of was, um, you know, for instance, uh, walking into an Islamic mosque is not a problem. Eating dinner with uh, a Muslim family is not a problem. But participating in an Islamic worship service is. Yet an even greater application, though, is for us to abstain from all forms of idolatry that the Scripture talks about. Lust, materialism, overworking, getting drunk, getting high, we need to realize that there is demonic influence in all of these forms of idolatry. So when we lust, we are partnering with the demons against the Lord. When we make work or school or anything else an idol, we are partnering with the demons, planting lies in our heads. When we get high, when we get drunk, we are partnering with demons and opening ourselves up to their influence and oppression. So we must Stay clear and stay away from all these things and put our Lord and His commandments first. And if we aren't doing that, then Paul warns that you have actually set yourself up against the Lord. And that's why Paul is so adamant at the beginning of our passage, flee. Flee. Our last point of application is about how Paul relates all of this to communion. And it's important that we understand what we do here at the Lord's table when we take communion. Paul, shares, Paul compares sharing in Christ with partnering with demons. And like I said earlier, this partnering with demons is not merely symbolic. There's an actual commune, communing taking place. And so too is it with the Lord during communion. We are not simply taking communion as just this time of remembering what Jesus did. The table of the Lord, communion, is a unique time of dining where we are communing with the Lord in His victory. And in doing this, we are also fostering unity within the body of Christ. See, 
one of the misunderstandings that is more current than historical within the church, and if you've been part of the Sunday school class, I've said this over and over again, which is that we need to recognize the presuppositions that we bring into understanding the way that the Lord works. We are skeptics and we are very modern. So anything that sounds mysterious, ugh, if I can't prove it with facts and evidence and see the results, then I don't get it and it must not be real. But that's not the way that most of human history has thought. And that's certainly not the way that the disciples and the early church would have thought about communion. When Paul compares partnering with demons and sharing with Christ and the Lord's Supper, they actually understand that this isn't just a metaphor. There's something real going on here. And therefore, it's important. One theologian compared communion and the sermon that they go together like a feast and after the cooking, right? So the sermon is the cooking. It's essential that we eat what has been properly prepared, right? And the Lord's table is the feast where we then dine together with Christ at his table. And so to feast without the cooking will make you sick, right? But to cook and not feast misses a particular aspect of fellowship with each other and with the Lord. And so the table signifies our present participation in the benefits that were purchased by Christ. Unfortunately, that's one of those things that can get lost pretty easily. It's something that we need to recall that Paul takes very seriously as we come to the table. And I'll stop there because I don't want to go too much further because we're going to get into that in the next chapter of why it's so important. But let me say this. Sometimes maybe we have a bad view of communion. And so because of that, we, we think, well, if we do it too much, if we do it too regularly, it'll lose its meaning. It'll lose its purpose. Well, let me say, you wouldn't say that about a sermon. You wouldn't say that about prayer. You wouldn't say that about your Bible reading. Do those things become meaningless because you do it weekly? No. Why? Because you understand why they're important and why they're necessary. Well, that's what's taking place with communion. It, we do it because it is important. God is actively at work when we take communion together. He is nourishing you spiritually through it. And so I will say this as we close. If there are idols in your life, if there are demons that you know you are partnering with, now is the time to repent. You bring that to the Lord. You confess. You ask for forgiveness. You repent of partnering with demons. And if you do that, then you can come and dine with us with Christ this morning during communion.